No, it is Turkey Week. Do we want to do a well, Thanksgiving it's, it's, it's episode? Satu- it's Small Business Saturday. Hello there. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am a sad Tom Nolan. And I'm an ecstatic Mario Ponzi of small businesses. Gotta love them. You know, small business is Saturday only matters if you're planning on buying stuff. during episode 39. Yeah. We like small business. We like small businesses all the time, but we especially like them on episode 39. Yeah. Yeah. If this was episode 40, I would be more into the corporate side of things. Yeah, you do a lot of Black Friday shopping. Yeah. Which my email is being ruined. No, I would just be supporting Nestle's like crusade to you know get rid of breast milk in, in developing nations. I'd be all aboard that. And, and replacing with what? Quick? Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, replacement milk. <laughs> it works. It's you know, creamy. Ensuring that there's no clean water anywhere. Ensuring. Yeah, get it. That's a good one. That's a good one from you. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, you set it up. You set it right up there. I did. Well, hopefully everyone listening had a had a wonderful holiday. Mm-hmm. Or if you're from one of the countries that doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving or celebrated it a month ago, hope you had a good Thursday. You watched yourself some movies. Yeah, some good ones coming out. Yeah, big big week of films here in here in America. You got. Irishman finally took up ten percent of the bandwidth of, of Netflix with its like two hundred and ten minutes yeah. on Wednesday and they got Ryan Johnson trying to put himself back in the public favor with knives out. We'll see. And we'll Queen see. and Slim. Daniel Kalua getting be Daniel Kalua again. Well the Queen and Slim thing is the phenomenon of Queen and Slim is really interesting because it was at like a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes for a long time. And then it came out and now it's at like eighty seven. Much like it's still or something. Which so is good. really good. But I just love it still the, got solved. It's still got like a mid seventies Metacritic. I just love when they get released at festivals and National Review. Only review is just kind of like Yes. Well, I'm. I would. I'm. Cannot wait to find out how much Armand White hates Queen and Slim. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm actually checking my phone like every day. Like, is this it? Is this do, we, it? do we think also Richard Brody's now communicating with him? Because Richard Brody's having this really angry opinions about films. I don't know. He he did like. He really liked one of the films we're going to talk about today, for weird reasons. The Fall. <laughs> no, no I don't think he reviewed the five thousand words on Jonathan Glazer. That is six-minute movie. Speaking about things we can spend numerous minutes talking about, because we've had multiple of their beers, it's the final week, because uh, this is the final, the final day of November today. I 
think. No, maybe that's tomorrow. I don't know, man. It's How two- many days are in November? No. 30. So. 27, 28, 20. Yeah. So. Yeah. Today it's Tuesday for us, but in release day land, in the future. It's, it's 1130, not 1126, because Tom <laughs> needs like five days to edit these things. I actually, I don't, but <laughs> I, I, it's, I. It's always, it's always like up on like possibly the next day. Well, last week I was doing all, I was doing homework. Now I don't have any homework to do, so I can see all movies and edit stuff and it'll be great. Also, I love how I started introducing the beer and then just got off on a tangent like I always do. Well, we started this podcast talking about something totally different, so. The final day of the athletic brewing run. It's been a it's been a fun one. Been a fun run. Been a fun run. After what you drink an athletic like beer. Beer, yeah. This one's this one's a calorie bomb though. This one's seventy calories. Seventy. I, I think this is a. That's twenty more than last four, week's. No, last week was. Oh, I thought it was, it was fifty. Was here fifty or forty? The first week I think was ninety though. So. Oh. oh. Nice, nice little medium. Yeah, yeah. This is their Run Wild. Their I. PA. They right. have a double dry. They have a dry hopped IPA, mm-hmm. but that's not really readily available in stores. And with it being the last, look at that. Look at what is happening here. It's emerging. Oh, oh, I, it's like the blob. I'm gonna be honest. Steve it's, McQueen's gonna have to come and save me. It's got a smell. It's got a. It's got a good smell. Yeah, it's, got, it's got a nice hoppy smell to it. It's all right. That's a good like mid range session IPA. It tastes like a. And this will be a positive for a non-alcoholic IPA. It tastes like a slightly watered-down uh, Founders All Day IPA to me. Mm. I'm going to be very honest with you. If somebody bought a whole bunch of this stuff in, next summer, someone had a party and bought a whole bunch of this stuff, carefully calibrated, like, oh, which ones are going to do, and put it in a big bucket, and then just put ice on it, and didn't say to anybody like what it was, you'd have a lot of people that were pretty happy. Yeah. Like, for a I long mean, time before they were just like... This is I've drinking 15 of these, and these aren't doing anything. I mean, maybe next November these won't be, won't be so great on a Tuesday. Um, I won't be drinking these the first, the first Tuesday of next November, but yeah, no. any, any other day I would be more than happy. Let's, hope, let's hope so. Let's hope so, Mario. I'm getting drunk one or two ways, either in celebration or in desperation of finding a visa. You know what? I'm going to... if. I imagine if next year goes bad, it's going to look a lot like our first movie that we're going to talk about. Oh, I do think so. <laughs> and that is the new experimental, um, which is, you know, you don't really have to say experimental Jonathan Glazer, I think. I think you just say Jonathan Glazer. I don't know. Short. He's really he's, he's pushing he's, it a little bit. <laughs> he's going far. This is The Fall, uh, which we do not have a clip, but just pretend that boom. Pretend me and Mario are both wearing sad baby masks. Yeah. Pretend we are characters from uh, The Strangers. Mm. But wearing, like, modern clothes. And not Liv Tyler. No, no, no. And, and we don't know what we're doing, but we know exactly what we're doing. Um, yeah. This is, <laughs> this this is, is weird. Is this no in, real so, uh, what I plot read, description on this I one. I read a thing somewhere that said that... Um, they made a reference to this in relation to some Holocaust movie he's working on that's coming out next year. Like, his next movie, I guess, is going to be a Holocaust movie. But they kind of tried to tie these two together. Does this movie have anything... Could this have anything to do with that? I, I don't know. Maybe. maybe. So, I mean, let's, we could just describe the movie real quick for someone. The movie starts by showing us a tree, and then the tree is shaking, and then they show us people trying to saw down a tree, and there's a guy in the tree. But the people... Then the guy falls out of the tree, and then... Someone takes a, a photograph with a flash of 
these people holding this guy, and everyone's wearing horrible baby, sad baby masks. Or featureless masks. Yeah. Like, like kind of, um, they seem vaudeville. To yeah, they extent. seem vaguely, yeah, like a little Greek, but like maybe more horror-stricken and more lifelike. Oh, Greek would be better than vaudeville. I, um, I said vaudeville. I like that we're on the same wavelength, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely have something, like, um, classical like anti- about them. Antiquated. Yeah. And then then the guy that was in the tree, they put into a well. And then we watched the, a rope go, go down a well for a long time. This is only a six-minute movie. That rope goes down that well for a long time. And what's also interesting about that rope is it's not really wrapped around anything. So it kind of just seems like... Seems like that exercise equipment you do for the chest exercise. Yeah. The rope is just kind of like on a, on a spindle. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem like the rope's getting any longer. No. It's not really unraveling. No, it's just falling as he falls endlessly yeah. into this pit. And it's then, not, then no, he stops no himself. Anywhere. Yeah. And then he sort of climbs back out or starts to climb out. And then it ends. My favorite thing about every attempt at a review I've said about this is everyone just keeps going that Jamiroquai virtual insanity music video was pretty great from him mm. and it feels like it's yeah it feels like it's it's hard to hard to grasp this one see what's I'm wondering if so I what just do, what watched, do you say about this I just watched under the skin again in anticipation of a list that we're going to be talking about um later in December um and I wonder if some he's, might say the end of the year. Some might, some might say that. I wouldn't say that because I don't believe in the normal Christian calendar. I believe in a different calendar. I'm not going to say which calendar. It's just different. Um, <laughs> it seems like he's taking some of it's his like the Dalek calendar. Yeah. What is that? It's a Doctor Who thing. Oh no! I was no, trying no. to think of a character. From, I've never seen any Doctor Who. I know. I was trying to think of characters from Hitchhiker's Guide. Nothing was popping mm. in my head. Vogon, Vogon calendar. Oh yeah, yeah. As a bureaucrat, I have to subscribe to the Vogon calendar. <laughs> um, I wonder if he's taking some of the stuff that he was doing in Under the Skin and just kind of like explicating, pushing it, it a little further, like with some of the shots, because you know he likes his center, he likes his center stuff, he likes he likes his deep focus, he likes, um, you know. I don't even know because in in under the skin he doesn't really he plays with lighting, but it's not in such a naturalized context. When the setting is more natural, the lighting is pretty normal. You know what I mean? I'm thinking of like the end of the movie uh, when they're in the woods and stuff like that. He's not doing crazy things with lighting. There seems to be some crazy ass shit happening with light here. Did he make a movie just to fuck with light and see how real he could make things seem and see if he could? draw menace out I mean, of just like a norm like a like rope feels, being scraped over wood it feels naturally lit like it's it's dark at points like it it but that it, tree that opening shot of that tree is really like ominous and kind of upsetting it's like the most upsetting tree i've ever seen but there's a very like there's a real like we've talked about virgin spring on this before there's a real virgin spring quality to like the the malleable nature of this tree like they're just shaking mm-hmm. the sh- it seems pretty high and they're just these people are just like shaking the shit out of it but it's really um the way that he has it lit it's it's i don't know it's just very strange 
It was a very strange six minutes. And the minutes. photograph has, um, like, when they take the photograph, that was it has, like, terrifying. This, it has a, a Tobe Hooper sort of, mm. like, Texas chainsaw the, degree to it. But then know? it was weird because, like, ran right after that, there was a guy that was wearing, like, a warm-up suit that was just like, yeah! And, that, like, was he did, like, that was Jamerify. <laughs> it was. He was just, like, pumping his fist, and I was like, I don't even know where we are now. Like, it seems like this is, like, a, you know, pre-industrial thing, but these people in there have have warm-up suits like these people could go to the club yeah it's but i don't know P- people try to say like it has a post-apocalyptic nature to it but it doesn't necessarily feel like that as a cultish doesn't really feel, feel like anything yeah kind of just feels like um i don't know made me feel like under the skid made me felt which is just like this weird sort of level that is at the present but not yeah this weird sort of mix of this is our greatest. Bad. This is our greatest review ever, by the way, right now. <laughs> well, it's almost as oh, it's longer than the it's longer than the film. Yeah, I think it's what four minutes long. Um, you know, worth a watch. It's, if you're interested, yeah. if you're if you're if, interested if you, in what you're, if you like doing, Jonathan Glazer, yeah, it's it's shorter than all of his music. Videos, I mean, I would add so. him to the list of people like you know Paul Thomas Anderson or Lynn Ramsey or like one of these other kind of auteur directors who, if they made a six minute short film. Like with the Paul Thomas Anderson and the Tom York video. You know what I mean? Like I was interested in that primarily just because I wanted to see what Paul Thomas Anderson was, has been doing since Phantom Threat. I mean, has he got there yet, though? I think so. Under I the mean, Skin was kind of was yeah, Under really significant. Under Skin's significant. Sexy Beast is, is incredibly solid, but Birth is kind of there. Mm-hmm. Birth is okay. That's there. Yeah. You know, he, has, he hasn't really like... And I guess like he's... Under the Skin kind of has that... That visual style to it, um, that, that's that's unique and, and magnifying. Like sexy beast and, and birth, while while doing some interesting things in that in that sort of way, aren't necessarily don't have that thumbprint to it. Well, so I'm like, gonna be honest with you. I don't he, say I don't think yeah. he's there yet. Well, I think I think under the skin kind of makes him be there. But yeah, sexy beast. If he doesn't I, get the Ben Kingsley performance out of sexy and Ray Winstone's performance out of sexy beast, I'm not sure if anyone really. Cares about sexy beast? Yeah, I'm not sure there's a Jonathan Glazer significance after that. Like, like I think the the natural weirdness of birth kind of gave him a bit of an up. Um, but yeah, that's why I'm kind of like I would hesitate to kind of say like, oh, this auteur yet um, until that pro his next project. We'll see. We'll see. Speaking of next projects, auteurs with prod next projects. Um, I like. I like James Mangold. He's fine. And I guess he this is, movie is that defines how we're going to talk about this next movie. super serviceable. Yeah, maybe a little better than super serviceable, but definitely serviceable. He's like... the worst thing you could say James Mangold, to me, is what Brett Ratner wants to be. That's a weird comment. Let's unpack that when we get back from this clip of Ford versus Ferrari. That's it, folks. Ferrari wins the 24 Hours of Le Mans for the fifth consecutive year. Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And, uh, called you fat, sir. We're gonna bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carol Shelby is gonna build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. 
And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? Ninety days. <laughs> or maybe Mick G. Mick. He's like, he's One like what, Mick G or Brett Ratner. And I don't want to say Brett Ratner because Brett Ratner is a real piece of shit. It turns out, right? Brett Ratner, he got me too, right? I think they're. Are they both? No, Mick G's. Mick G's a Netflix guy now. He's okay. Is he? Okay. He's got the babysitter movies, but Brett Ratner. I keep. You know, That's the Rush Hour guy, right? I'm gonna put a pin Brett on. Rush I'm gonna Hour. put a pin on Brett Ratner being a piece of shit. I know for sure Brian Singer is, but you know, in other words, like like Mangold is is that director who you can have do night and day or identity and like let his actors breathe, but really he's not like doing a lot of stuff there. You know, he's he's really good at that. Yes, he's very good at that. Um, he's very good at making very solid movies that I. Kind of like, but also don't care about. Yeah, and Ford versus Ferrari uh, deals with the um, 1966 Le Mans race, uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Ah, oh, Brett Ratner is a piece of shit. Yeah, good to know. Uh, allegedly, <laughs> let's get that in there. Um, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, it is a two. Major corporations going against each other. Ferraris won four of the five Le Mans, like, yeah, something Le Mans like that. in a row. Um, and after being smited by smited, after being smote, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Smited, spited, spited by spited, spite. What are you talking after about? After when Ferrari doesn't sell to to Ford, you know oh, they decide oh. that they're gonna create a great racing car. Ford does. Ford to, to usurp Ferrari and mm-hmm. they enlist um, Carol Shelby in order to design this car um, with the help of, of Ken Miles. And together they they work against the, the powers that be. And <laughs> I want this try to, to turn build, into a Transformer movie. <laughs> try to build a car that can, <laughs> that can be the one to beat Ferrari. And then they don't. And then... I mean, yeah. Eventually they do. But not but Ken first Miles. I don't. Not Ken Miles though. He doesn't. He doesn't get the win. No. Doesn't he win though? No. He gets. He gets sick. He he dies he... like before he races again. Wait. Does he? I don't know if does Miles ever actually win. I don't, I don't know. Think Miles ever wins. He gets second in sixty six. I suppose Mario. I I feel like we could start our review with this. This is a movie that I really kind of liked. Um. I think it. I felt good watching it, but I didn't go. Home when it was uh, over. Never, yeah, he never won. And look that up. He won the twenty four hours of Daytona though. Oh, okay. Yeah, well he won that in the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. He um I didn't go home and look that up because I didn't really care. And I I feel like a movie like this, if it's really being like ultra successful, should make me really care about Ken Miles and Carol Shelby and car racing. And I didn't I, I don't care about those things at all. Actually, I think they're all stupid. Not Ken Miles. Ken Miles seems like an all right guy. But car racing and cars. Um, and Matt Damon performances. Yeah. I don't, we'll get there. <laughs> um, and I didn't. And I don't feel bad about it. Like, I just enjoyed watching it. And the people that were in the theater with me enjoyed it too. And when he held up that, like, 7,000 go like hell sign, me and the person... That was sitting like across the aisle from me. We were both just like, mm, yeah, yeah, get it. And and it's it's exciting. It's it's a well done. I don't know, would we necessarily call this? I want to call it a biopic. A, a no, 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 no. Yeah. A historical 
slice of, of like event a, yeah. sort of film. And, and it does that well. Um, you know, the entire race is shot, shot in credit. I like that fact that it, it doesn't kind of do that days of thunder thing of quick cuts and like not letting the scene breathe. It, mm-hmm. It's very, James Mangold's really good at like letting you see the action and letting the action kind of have like this full wide scope to it. You get that really well in like 310 to Yuma, which is still my favorite of his, mm-hmm. and, like Logan, um, even like something as shitty as like night and day, mm-hmm. which is fun, shitty, like good Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron Diaz. Yeah, I was gonna um, say I just forgot about that movie. <laughs> um, like it, it breathes, and and that works. And it's also interesting to me. The one thing I really was surprised about was the fact that like some of the supporting performances in this were were really solid from guys I didn't expect to be yeah. solid. Like Josh Lucas is a piece of shit, and he's usually really bad. But he was a pretty serviceable piece of shit in this. And it was nice. Um, it was nice seeing Josh Lucas be a piece of shit. It was nice seeing John Bernthal do, like, something really significant besides everything that he normally does. Yeah, besides, like, using... I mean, you kind of get that in being Wind like, River. Right. But, like, but, like, still Wind River has this kind of, like, gruffness to this. But right. Leia Koka isn't that. I thought he was actually really good. Man, you know? But, I mean, who the winner of <laughs> the Supporting Actor Award in this movie is fucking Tracy Letts. Oh, yeah, that's. I was going to talk about amazing. the. I was going to talk about the actors who we don't usually expect a lot of good from. But I don't know if I expect like amazing work from Tracy Letts. Although it seems oh, like I we're going to get. I love we talked. We talked about this in. I mean, before the podcast started, we we hadn't started this podcast when Lady Bird came out, right? No. Um, no, we didn't. But I fucking love Tracy Letts and Lady Bird. But he was good in Lady Bird. He's I fucking a, loved him in Lady he was Bird. Fine. He's fine. Yeah, but we, we had this argument. I fuck like when I nominate like when we did our because spoiler on alerts I'm a huge we're both huge nerds who have done this best of the year list for years and Tracy Letts I think was like my six because huh. we did six back then mm-hmm. or maybe I like cheated and had seven and he was on there and you're like what what is like, this what I, mean, I thought Why? he was I mean I thought he was good in Lady Bird and I, this I need to stress this because we're going to be talking about Lady Bird later not today but later this year. Um, Oh, for that. Um, I thought he was fine. This is a different thing. This seems like a totally different thing. It seems like oh, he's no, committed absolutely. himself back to chi- back to Chicago theater acting, and like was really like going to get it. Like <laughs> during that amazing, scene he channeled. Where... He channeled when he was writing Bug. Yeah, <laughs> what that must have felt like. Um, and and yeah, I mean, so those moments really balance out. I think a really weird unevenness in this movie, which is that Christian Bale's great. Yeah, Christian Bale's acting its fucking face. And it's it's great in the fact that like this will be contentious, I guess. This is my favorite like Bale performance since probably around yep. like three ten to Not contentious, I agree. Hundred percent. But like where it's it's a really reserved sort of human it's character. A human. And, and a he's, human. He's not kinda like putting on this this facade, um, which is kind of like that, that showmanship that he's been doing, even in something like American Hustle or whatnot, which is a terrible movie anyway, but where he's just gained a little bit of weight. Um, it's the most human, relatable performance since 310 to Yuma. The difference about 310 to Yuma is you have a really solid performance from Russell Crowe yeah. acting against it, and in this you have Matt Damon being who, Matt Damon. Who is replacing him? I don't want him here. I don't want him. I thought he really held this movie back from being something 
slightly better than it was. He, he just can't. I mean, what did he? He just can't. I do mean, he's things. not bad. He's, he's not just bad, but he's just out of flat. position. He's out yeah. of place here. And I was just listening to like a bunch of podcasts that were like, "Oh, Matt Damon's great because he does, he can be like the B guy. He doesn't have to be the A guy." And I was like, "But if you're gonna be the B guy, you can't just be like, my name is Matt Damon. That's it. You have to do some or things. Or you can be the one A guy, like." Like, or be like the one A guy. Christian but you still Bale have to keep is up. the one A guy in Three Ten to Yuma. He's he's the B guy in Three Ten to Yuma. Let's say he's right. holding up that kind sure, of like sure. bombastic Russell Crowe performance. Or even like at times Hugh Jackman, like in Logan, is kind of holding up like Patrick Stewart's mm-hmm. like performance in Logan. Um, and then this Matt Damon just kind of like seems lost. Well, what did I say? What movie was I talking about? Oh, I was talking about. Um... The Tessa Thompson movie, Little Woods, where Tessa Thompson's so good and everyone else around her is so flat. And so her good performance just kind of like hangs there. You know there. I want to see here? Noah Emmerich. Do you really want to see Noah Emmerich here? Do you really want to see Noah Emmerich? I, just, I, I actually it. thought you were going to say a whole bunch of different names. Noah Emmerich was not the name I thought you were going to say. I, was gonna, I just wanted to fight for little children again. <laughs> no, why did you say Patrick Wilson? No, because I'm, I'm, I'm a real human. No, I'm not going to fight. What would have been cool is to, see, is to see Christian Bale act against himself. To do like a computer-generated split performance. That would have been awesome. Um, but so Who do yeah, you want to see in here? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Part of me wanted to see... I just wanted like a little bit of like intensity. But he just did all of his line reading so flat. Like, but I, he's the right age, and he's kind of got the right look, and he's kind of carries himself in the right way. But the performance as a whole, I think, from a verbal standpoint, is just not—it's just not up to snuff. He's not—he doesn't have any charisma. You get Neil McDonald in here. Oh my God! Why don't you just say Tate Donovan? <laughs> You'll take any of them. We're not Matthew Perry. Let's do. Let's just hey, go in that direction. Did you see Mr. Sunshine? No, I did not. It's fine. Good one season show. I don't know. It was. I don't know who I want to see here. I don't know. Tate Donovan. Brendan like, Fraser. I can Tate Donovan. We just just insert all school ties characters. Tate Donovan might be a little too old. Yeah, this is a tough one. We'll think. We'll but have, no, it's, we'll have it's to a, think about this. Overall, it's great visually. Like this is this is one of those other like Ad Astra. You know. Yeah, looks it's, good. It's a solid. Like it takes a while to get there, but once you get to the race, like it's a theater kind of experience mm-hmm. like the sound design all that's incredible um yeah i saw in and, at the um did you see an xd xd because it was the earliest showing oh so i just bit the bullet and yeah, was I like saw, i saw the regular matinee xd it was fine I saw them regular because i'm cheap and actually it was it probably wasn't that much different in xd than it would have been normally normal theater it wasn't like dunkirk no, Where, like I felt overwhelmed by like the experience of seeing an XD. It was just like car racing. You might have to see 1917 in, in XD. Yeah, that would be. That sounds like an XD one. Um, but yeah, it was good. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna be nominated for some stuff. It's not like a bad movie. It's definitely it's a good movie. It's like a no, B yeah. plus A minus movie. Yeah, it's just it's just it's not. My socks are firmly staying on my feet. One hundred percent. Yeah, they didn't even roll. They didn't even really roll down. They did not roll down. But I didn't hate myself like I did the week no. before when I saw Doctor Sleep. <laughs> yeah. <That's okay. laughs> so it's really all that matters. Yeah, it's not a waste of time. No, no, And if no, you no, like no. car racing for some reason, I yeah. would say this is, this is a really solid movie about cars. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying necessarily it's a movie about car racing, but it's a solid movie about cars. 
Yeah. If you care about cars. I don't care about cars. And I still thought it was a solid movie about cars. If you're Richard Kind, go see this. He likes cars? I'm just going to assume he does. I don't want to say Tim Allen because he seems like a, he's a real piece of shit. So I'm going to say Richard Kind. Why not Jay Leno? I don't know. Jerry Seinfeld. Ugh. He does a show about cars. He should have both of these guys in cars. I thought the show was about coffee. And comedians in cars getting coffee. I thought the show was about the coffee. He should have Christian Bale in a car. Well, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Instead of Matt Damon. <gasps> ah, now we're on to something there. You know what? Actually... Michael, Rich- Michael Richards. <laughs> Give him a shot. Oh, man. Now I just want to do it. That was the worst thing ever. But I can't. Again, I'm skipping it. You know who might have been pretty good in this role? Matthew Rees. Matthew. Actually. actually yeah. We have to talk no, about that, too. Young. But maybe... Tom Hanks. Chris Cooper. Chris, Chris, oh. Cooper. Chris Cooper's good in any role. I'm going to be honest with you. I forgot Chris Cooper was in this next movie. And I was when he showed up, I was like, <gasps> Chris Cooper. And no, I didn't realize Chris Cooper was in this movie. Yeah. I was just like, oh, is, this, is the guy I'm thinking of the most famous person in this movie? And that guy is Tom Hanks. And the movie is called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. Mr. Rogers, I'm here to interview you. It is so nice to meet you. You okay? Profiling Mr. Rogers. Lloyd, please don't ruin my childhood. Um, Mr. Rogers is played by Tom Hanks. This movie is directed by Mariel Heller, who directed last year's Mario Top Ten list. Can you ever forgive me? Sorry, Melissa McCarthy and the tremendous Richard E. Grant. Um, this movie was written by Micah Fitzerman, Blue, and Noah Harpster, um, inspired by the article that is mentioned in this movie by Tom Juno. That was an Esquire called Can You Say Hero? You ever read that? I never read that. I didn't read it. Nope. And it didn't seem like I needed to read yeah. it. Um, the movie is not about Mr. Rogers per se. It's about this guy named Lloyd Vogel who's having some trouble in his life. He's got a dad who he's got a lot of issues with. He's a little distant from his family, which now includes a new baby named Gavin. Um, and he gets an assignment to write uh, a puff piece, a 400-word puff piece about Mr. Rogers, who is the only guy who is willing to talk to Lloyd Vogel because apparently Lloyd has a bit of a reputation for being... A kind of, um, I don't know, like he'll like uh, a reporter who'll say the things that shouldn't be said, and people don't like it. And so he goes to meet him, and he has his world turned upside down a little bit, and kind of develops a relationship with Mister Rogers. And Mister Rogers helps Lloyd to kind of heal the emotional wounds that have been open inside of him for years and years and years since the death of his mother. And the like abandonment of their of of their father, Jerry Vogel, played by Chris Cooper. Um, the movie is really interestingly framed as an episode of Mister Rogers. Um, I was surprised how far they went with that. It wasn't just like the opening 
which is amazing. And it wasn't just kind of like all the little houses and stuff like that. The how do you make a magazine piece was like a perfect transition, like back into the movie from um, like the Lloyd stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of amazing. And, it, and you know, it ends with uh, an episode of, you know, it ends with like the Mr. Rogers goodbye stuff. And then, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers is playing the piano. Um I went into it. I, I might have talked about it on this podcast. I might have. I definitely talked about it with Mario. I had very little expectations because I wasn't sure what the necessity was for this movie after last year's um, "Won't You Be My Neighbor," which me and Mario both really liked, and I thought distilled um, the value of Mister Rogers and, and and his thoughts on children and teaching and compassion, kindness, and all that other stuff. Um, Pretty well. I wasn't sure what this else this movie was going to do that that documentary didn't already do. Um, needless to say, Mario, I was very surprised. Um, like, very surprised from the op- from the very beginning of this movie, it was kind of churning up all sorts of of things inside of me. Not related to like any relationship that I have with Mister Rogers because I don't have a relationship with Mister Rogers or any like damage that I might have between like me and my wife or me and my father or anything like that. I thought while the, the documentary was like a really good, like I said, a really good distillation of, of his teachings. This movie seemed to be like putting those teachings in practice. Like this is how they actually work in like a real life. And I thought it was just like really, really interesting. And I thought it was also really interesting that, they make a lot of movies now about that are based off of, and they've always made movies based off of like magazine pieces, like long magazine pieces. And I'm thinking specifically of the old man and the gun from last year. And I thought about that movie a lot when I was thinking about this movie, because that movie is just kind of like, a, it's just like a, a movie about a guy. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so the magazine piece is inherently going to be less long than like a, um, like a book or something like that's going to have a little less information. It's going to have a little more space for a movie to kind of fluff stuff out and pull stuff out and extrapolate some meanings and add things and what have you. Interestingly, this movie actually plays exactly like a magazine piece. You know what I mean? It has, it has a, it has a framework. It has, it has stages. It has little digressions and then you catch back up with where you were. It has it has a present tense and that present tense weirdly is inside Mr. Rogers' show um, where everything is kind of happening and then he digresses and then he catches up and then it's, and all of that stuff, the fluid nature of this and the strength of the emotions on hand here, I found it weirdly powerful and weirdly moving. I mean, um, this is going to be this is going to be very high on my list, like at the end of the year. And I think the main reason for that is gonna be, I mean, Tom Hanks in this movie. And again, I was skeptical of Tom Hanks's casting in this because it seemed too perfect. It is unnervingly perfect. And I'm not saying because he looks like Fred Rogers. It seems like he's possessed by Fred Rogers. Um, and that's. That was awesome. That felt really good. And it was really weird to see Tom Hanks go to that kind of level because I don't think he has that. I didn't think he had that level in him anymore. Um, but yeah, I know 
you were not you were I think more excited for this movie because you liked Can You Ever Forgive Me more than I did. Um, but how did you feel? How, what was this? How did this movie do for you? Um, it's serviceable. Uh, I, I it didn't resonate with me, and I, I think a great a deal of that had to do with the framing and, and the choice of of doing a lot of the miniature transitions. Oh, or, you didn't or, like that I, stuff. I, I didn't, um, especially like that nightmare sequence or that dream sort of sequence that that miniaturized bunny sequence. You know. Um, for me, it, it it took me out of it, and like Hanks is is incredible here. Um, he doesn't look like Mister Rogers. He he doesn't really get the mannerisms down, but the inflection of his voice and everything is is resonating and hitting those spots. And it's kind of like it feels like Tom Hanks kind of embodying it, but it definitely at a certain point you you kind of forget that's Tom Hanks. Like you don't see Tom Hanks there anymore. You don't see you see. I don't necessarily see Mr. Rogers, but no, I see no, no. kind of like but the you... spirit yeah, 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 yeah. of Mr. Rogers. I see as though the ideas or whatnot and the concepts of Mr. Rogers kind of like invaded Tom Hanks's body. Yeah. Because I still see, I never stopped seeing Tom Hanks, but it doesn't feel like a Tom Hanks performance. Right, it, it doesn't. Me. And I want to get to that, like after, like um, at the end of this. But overall, like that, like there's something. That, and I don't know if it's because of the fantastical nature of, of the presentation that feels inauthentic to me. That feels saccharine. Um, it uh. feels like, like if, if you kind of swipe away the, 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 the narrative of Mr. Rogers there, kind of like, the, the, that the, like just Mr. Rogers being there, like that main Lloyd-Jerry conflict feels really in a just unnatural not necessarily unnatural but just feels very tv by the numbers yep. to me um and and i just could not help but contrast it with with can you ever forgive me where you know those emotions feel so realized and you know i mean it's incredibly cynical um but that cynicism is done in such a way that it feels lived in and that you more feel as though you can step beside Melissa McCarthy and Richard Grant's character in that. Um, whereas this, you know, you, you take away that, that really solid supporting performance and, and you're left with this film that has these really bizarre choices and a mediocre Matthew Reeves performance. Well, I'm, like, yeah, people are in love I with have a question. But just... I mean, if I'm Paul Rudd's agent, I'm wondering when I'm getting fired. You know what I mean? That Paul Rudd wasn't in this? Well, because I feel like this is Paul Rudd's opportunity to win an Oscar. Or like to at least be nominated for an Oscar. You know what I mean? Because the whole time Matthew Reese was He's doing stuff... He's busy trying to get nominated for Emmys. And I hope he doesn't, because that show fucking stinks. <laughs> yeah, it ended um, But, yeah, the whole time I was just like, I want... I know he's supposed to be like a sad sack, and he's supposed to be like miserable... But it's like I just don't want this guy here. I want like I want a little more energy here, and I feel like he just kind of has like a Paul Rudd air. And I was like, just just make no. get Paul Rudd. And the problem with that is is like even though you know, kind of Jerry Chris Cooper is kind of like playing this this role of, of somebody who's like seeking forgiveness, but has like a lot of damage from his past and has done a lot of damage to Lloyd. Um, 
the way in which Reese plays that that performance, like in that relationship, and then also plays his relationship with his wife, well, makes Zoom- him feel like a real kind of like piece of shit. So you, yes. you just you don't feel like he's not necessarily deserving of any sort of forgiveness, but you don't want to sit. You don't want an in to Mr. Rogers or, or kind of like the ideas of Mr. Rogers through this lens. Well, that's and see, and I don't feel like there's even like a trans, like a natural transition into like where he kind of sees the error of his ways and feels forgiveness. I don't get that. Yeah. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like Reese. And I like Matthew Reese. Typically. I like them in the, like of what I watched the Americans until like every show I got bored of it after like the first season. I like usually what he's doing. Um, but this just, there's some, it's like that, that same cynicism that you see in Can You Ever Forgive Me? But it feels fake. Like, really fake. And thus, I don't care about this character's story. Yeah, here's what I would say. And I, I agree with you. I think he's kind of like a weak spot here. Especially, I think, um, Susan um, Kelechi Watson as his wife, Andrea. I don't know who she is. I thought she was very good here because I thought she did something that I think Mr. Tom Hanks is able to do as Mr. Rogers, which Chris Cooper was able to do as Jerry, which is to kind of imbue this character with a certain amount of interior pain. And I didn't get the sense that Matthew Reese had any interior pain. All his pain was in his face. You know what I mean? So, you know, where she's, you get the sense that like when she mentions that she's giving stuff up or people mention around her that she's giving stuff up or like when she's like has to kind of take care of this baby because he can't take care of the baby or when they juxtapose her taking care of the baby with his taking care of the baby. It seems like this thing that she's doing is um, really significant to her. And I don't get the impression that anything he's doing is significant to him at all. And he keeps talking a lot about the fact that it's like, oh, I want, you know, my writing, I care about my work. doesn't even really seem like he cares all that much about his work. Um, but I will say this. I actually think it's, a, I think it's a perfect narrative to kind of unleash some of these Mr. Rogers, like, doctrines on it. Because I think one of the things that Mr. Rogers is saying on his show, because all of the things, if you're a kid, you know, he did a million of these shows. You know what I mean? And every show is going to have a theme and every show is going to be about something. If you're a kid, the tiniest little things really seem like the world is falling down on you. And I know this from experience. I know this from this morning when my little guy didn't want to go to school for no reason. But he was like crying and he was just kind of, he couldn't make himself want to go to school and went to school and he was fine all day. Just like a thing. It it sticks in there and it just kind of crushes you. That still happens to me. Sure, it still happens to me too. But I think... Every day. (laughs) It's happening right now. Um, I was thinking, you're coming here for the podcast. I was like, I don't want to do this. (laughs) You were under the table when I got here. Um, Just downing 0.5% ABV beers. (laughs) It's not doing anything, Tom. I'm not doing anything. I, keep, I still feel everything. I just keep peeing myself. <laughs> um, I think what he's saying is that, like, that kind of, and I'm, I'll relate this to a book I just read called Remainder by Tom McCarthy, where the, the character mentions that, like, um, talks about, like, bits of bone getting stuck in the joint of a knee and how that, like, like irritates, like it irritates, you know what I mean? And it gets in there and you can feel it and it rolls around and it digs in and all this other stuff. I think that's kind of the point of the movie is that like, this is not like a major thing, but it's, 
it doesn't have the same stakes as Can You Ever Forgive Me? But to Lloyd, and I wish Matthew Reese had played it better, it feels like it has the same stakes. And I think what Mr. Rogers is kind of saying is that you, we gotta, you have to let that stuff, you have to be able to let that stuff go. And I think, I guess the thing, if you don't like the framing device, there's nothing you could do. You know what I mean? I loved the framing device. I thought it was really good. I thought this movie could have, with the framing device and with the nature of the narrative, I was like, this movie sh- could, this movie should stink. This movie should not work. But I think Mariel Heller is, an, I think she has a really significant director, or she's becoming a really significant director, and kind of like that, a different way in that Jonathan Glazer way that we talked about, where he's kind of like reimagining what life looks like. You know what I mean? Where she is just, she's making the most human stories some of the most human stories that I think we I've seen in the last couple of years. You know what I mean? And in completely desperate, like different ways. Yeah, and I think this I think this marries well and I think Can You Ever Forgive Me marries well to something like Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory, where she's not rewriting the cinematic wheel here, but she's giving she's letting she's showing you an honest giving honest emotions and showing you a, a vision of not what real life feels like, but what real human emotions feel like, and conveying them. Um, honestly, on the on the screen, instead of trying to, and even though I think she is trying to pull at you a little bit, you know what I mean? She's trying to pull at all those tear strings that are in your face and to drag all the tears through. I don't think she's doing it just to make you cry. I think she's doing it for for a point. I think the movie loses a little bit of steam at the end when they're hanging out at Jerry's house, um, but I think it. I think it. I think it for whatever reason it just really, really worked. I don't get it, and I think that I think the end end with Tom Hanks just sitting there at the piano as the, like the lights go down is fucking brilliant. Him, him being angry, like just kind of going through those emotions, yeah. but going through them, and that's I think the whole point of the thing is that he's you're, he's going through them without like having to say anything about them and he's processing them you know what I mean and he's he sits down which is, and he which is thinks like a, like, and then he bangs on the thing and then he plays a couple more notes and then he plays a couple more notes and then he sits and it's just really beautiful it was just really beautifully done I, I mean I'm I'm now looking forward to the next Mariel Heller thing which I don't think is coming anytime soon from the way that she's kind of talked about the fact that she made Can You Ever Forgive Me and then this like right on top of each other no, she's um, going to keep doing it. She's going to make a new movie every year. It's going to be a new some biopic. Well, there's going to be some Hollywood actor that's like, can you please make this movie with me? It's going because... to be Matt Damon. Oh, my God. It's going to be Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Please resurrect us. <laughs> and then it'll be terrible, and then Mary Heller will get kicked out of Hollywood forever. She'll have to make another Diary of a Teenage Girl movie. Did you see that? I didn't see that. I didn't tell it. Hmm. We'll, have to, we'll have to do a bonus episode. Um... But yeah, I mean, I but to that end, really quick, I actually think this is probably the most interesting movie that Tom Hanks has ever been in. And not because it's because he's made a lot of uninteresting movies. I think to this point when I was making my list, my top 5 Hanks movies just like subjectively are and not in any kind of order. Are A League of Their Own, You've Got Mail, Saving Private Ryan, The Money Pit and That Thing You Do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan's the most interesting movie on that list, but it's also just kind of being Tom Hanks. And he's just making it's just a Steven Spielberg movie. They're excellently made and it's it's 
does all the things correctly that it's supposed to do. But how interesting is it really? Contrast that with Lady Killers, The Terminal. Which is a terrible movie. Bachelor Party. Which also is a terrible movie. Money Pit. Money Pit is great. And Lady Killers again. But you know Lady Killers stinks, right? It's my top five. <laughs> but, but Lady Killers isn't an interesting movie either. It's like the Coen Brothers, like, one of their least interesting movies. Wait, sorry, Lady... I mentioned Lady Killers? Yeah, you did twice. Okay. It was your number one and your number five. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it was no particular order. Um, it, 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 my actual order would have been Lady Killers, Lady Killers, Bachelor Party, <sighs> The Terminal, and that movie where he gets AIDS. Lady Killers? Uh, the, oh, Philadelphia. No, 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 it's, uh... Big. Big. No, he doesn't get AIDS in Big. Biggest, biggest sexually, you know, ambiguous there. There's nothing wrong there. That girl, that woman does not know. She does know eventually that he's 11. Yeah. But eventually she does know he's 11. That's Deborah Winger, right? No, no, that's not Deborah Winger. Who is that? No, I got this. I got this. In Big, she does not know until she finds out in the very end, you know, that he is. I thought she did know. Elizabeth Perkins, yeah. Elizabeth Perkins and... Deborah Winger mixed up, actually. That's happened multiple times. Um, that thing. That thing that happens. And she finds out, but she's probably... She's probably going to need some help with that. She's probably not yeah, happy she's, about her it. her life is going to be ruined. She didn't, she didn't do anything wrong. I don't know. It was weird. Tom Hanks had a really weird career. He's made a lot of Steven Spielberg movies. Like, just, too many. Yeah, how and too many Robert Zemeckis movies. Yeah, that's, that's the bigger one. You know what I mean? So I think it's just one of these things where... Surprised it's, he wasn't in What Lies Beneath. It's, yeah. Oh, is that better? Is that movie better On the subject worse? of Harrison Ford, that Call of the Wild movie looks fucking terrible. <laughs> Why is that? That's not a that, real dog. That's a CGI dog. That dog looks like a through. fucking dragon. That dog looks huge. Well, the thing that's terrible is like when that dog turns the corner in the trailer... They give it a cartoon like Scooby Doo turn. It's yeah. like, aren't you trying to make this into a real dog? It has a Scooby Doo face. It like, rolls its eyes at him. Also, Disney realizes they have a streaming service for movies like yeah. this, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it, February, I guess, is also kind of like a, a like, streaming service like, for movies like this. I'm sure Lady and the Tramp got like 63% reviews. Fucking put Lady and the Tramp out in February and throw this shit on Disney Plus. That movie looks fucking. Terrible. Also, have you read Call of the Wild? No. That shit is not a kids movie. It is there now. There is like people getting killed by Native you Americans. You want to go on an adventure there book? Is, there is dogs just a, a, hey. that dog massacres a Native American tribe. <laughs> Fucking tears them apart. Hey, in this movie, it's just a part of the adventure. They're going on an adventure. Wouldn't that be great though if it turns out the rated R and like there's a part where like. A dog kind of like did gloves. I don't know. That, Chris, that dog, Crispin Glover. That dog. At the that last shot of the thing when they're just like standing on that mountain or the bluff, like looking at the mountains. That dog is up to Harrison Ford's shoulder, yeah, and, and they're how, standing next to each other. How's the CGI so bad? I don't know. Isn't there CGI in the gray? Aren't there CGI dogs in the gray? They look better. I don't know, Mario. I don't know. I like the gray. I don't know. The gray is probably a more realistic call of the wild than the, that. Piece of shit. I think I, they must have thought that was a great idea, and then some. All their dogs that they were using were not cutting it, so they just decided to use fake dogs. I don't know. 
I usually am not. I don't do not talk at all during movies. Like if I'm just by myself. Oh, did you get that? Did you get that trailer during Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? Yeah. I came in late. And it was like, it was, the theater was full and I was sitting next to someone for the first time in a movie, I think since you and me went to see a movie and I was like, what the fuck is this? That the person responds, I don't the know. The girl next, yeah, the girl next to me who smelled like she took a bath in a bag of smart food popcorn was just like, I don't know. And I was like, you smell very bad. <laughs> we'll be right back <laughs> with our number 39. <laughs> Animated films played a major role of my childhood, as I think they do for a lot of people. You know what didn't play a big role? The Sandlot. Wasn't a big fan of See, that. See, that's, that's a funny thing, because I gravitated more towards that stuff than I did to animated movies. I loved Little Giants, just because I liked... I, I like Little Giants, too. I thought the girl, and it was cute. Icebox. Kid. Is that Icebox, the yeah. girl? Yeah. I was a big fan of her as a kid. But animated films were a huge part of my childhood. My mom... I was one of those crazy, obsessed, clam case collecting Disney people oh, who yeah. just needed to get the entire collection. Yep. And I would sit down and watch them all. I just had like a really intense sensory flashback. And they'd smell. To they'd opening those. plastic smell. And, and like, they'd get stiff. And they'd get hard to pull out. Yes. You didn't pull them out. Oh, um, sorry. And you know, actually recently with uh, the, the launch of Disney Plus and I got a membership, um, been watching some of those movies back, and some of them really hold up, despite their vastly terrible cultural highlights. Um, Peter Pan still great, but you know, don't 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 do all the Native American stuff you do <laughs> in that movie. Little Mermaid, however, fucking sucks, man. Rewatching that, that looks bad. The animation yep. in that is terrible. Mm-hmm. Under the sea. Yeah. Under the sea. It's just bad. Like, it's stiff. It's all very flat. It's, it's like flat. kind of paper cutouts with not a lot of definition. The water has no depth. And I'm, I I got really scared. And I was like, I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast now. Hmm. Gonna, I, I'm going to do it to myself. Even Aladdin and then has I did, more. And I did. And I was like, oh, good. Okay. Now I know this got nominated for Best Picture. Because it was just like saving Disney from the abyss. But around about the time I turned like. 12, 13, you know, horror movies kind of started taking the place of the animated feature mm-hmm. for me. They, uh, I grew into, to the screams and the, you know, the, the house on haunted hills, the deep risings, you know, I, that deep was, rising. Yeah. That good old treat Williams flick. <laughs> oh man. Cliff Curtis is in that motherfucker. Deep rising. I think Dimash Hassan is in it too. Um, did they say the name? Uh, the guy from uh, Blood Diamond. D- D- Digimon. Diamond Hansu? D- Digimon Hansu? Yeah. Yeah. The guy I from think, Amistad? I think he's in that too. Is he? Yeah. Hmm. He gets an axe in the head. We'll do a Diary of a Teenager and Deep Rising <laughs> bonus podcast. But, and so I, I drifted away from animated films. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any desire to see animated films. I, I'd watch some of the Disney movies that had come out. I'd see Lilo and Stitch and it didn't do anything for me. I'd see Toy Story. Spoilers, I fucking hate Toy Story. We've talked about that before, though, right? Uh, I think so. Um, I'm, Bugs, not, I'm not sad about that. A Bug's Life was okay. I didn't even see that movie. Finding Nemo was okay. 
You know, I'd see I'd see the big tent pole films, and all of them were okay. And I uh, tent pole animated films, mm-hmm. and I just felt maybe it was done. Maybe it was time. Maybe animated films were over. And then eighteen, I saw. I figured I'd watch the next big Pixar movie. I I enjoyed some of the superhero movies of the time, so I figured I'd give give this one a chance. It was Brad Bird's Incredibles. Super ladies, they're always no. trying to tell you their secret identity. Think it'll strengthen the relationship or something like that. <laughs> I said, girl, I don't want to know about your mild-mannered alter ego or anything like that. I mean, you tell me you are a super mega ultra lightning babe. That's all right with me. I'm good. I'm good. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, <laughs> for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for, for ten minutes? Sometimes I think I just like the simple life, you know, relax a little and raise a family. Settle down. Are you kidding? I'm at the top of my game. I'm right up there with the big dogs. Girls, come on. Leave the saving of the world to the men? I don't think so. Superheroes have been really fucking shit up. <laughs> and their attempts to save the day, they've been destroying buildings and causing some, some mayhem of their own. And after complaints and lawsuits and various governments' intervention, they are made to relocate and go underground, as it were. Not literally, but into what is basically a witness protection program and live normal, everyday lives. Mr. Incredible. Now, Bob. Bob Parr is uh, working day to day at night trying to do some superhero shit with his friend Frozone. But uh, it just isn't working out for him. He keeps showing off his superhero-ness. And keeps getting relocated, gets threatened with, you know, not, not being able to relocate again and mm-hmm. vanished, as it were. Um, and then he hears about the possibility of, of, of an opportunity, uh, a, a, a ability to tackle this robot, pro- thing, robot yeah. creature. Um, it's going to destroy a government facility. And it turns out that this was actually a ploy by his old number one fan, Scientologist extraordinaire Jason Lee, <laughs> who's now dubbed himself Syndrome and wants to destroy... The, the superheroes, not necessarily the story, but make everyone super. So that, as he famously says, when everyone's super, nobody will be. And from there, you know, the rest of the family with their superhero abilities rises up and helps save the day. When I saw this it in the theaters, it, it blew my mind in a very popcorn sense. Um... To that point, I've always been a big fan of, of just a superhero movie. Um, I liked Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, but they hadn't had... There was still this 
CGI and 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 the graphics hadn't gotten to that point yet where you could really immerse yourself in this mm-hmm. in, into the the action. <clears throat> and Incredibles, you know, was the first Pixar movie, eh, the second Pixar movie. I think I think Finding Nemo is visually impressive, but Incredibles is the one where it's still an animated feature, but you know the action set pieces and, and the emotion, the the emotion in the action is so consuming that it you know it it just struck me and and i right then was back on the board the animated film Mm. really the incredibles is fine i think it's a fine movie rewatching it it's okay rewatching incredibles 2 well actually i never rewatched incredibles 2 but watching incredibles 2 it stinks Incredibles 2 is bad. Compared to what? Compared to movies. Like, just it's just a bad movie. Oh, it's better than this movie. Well, I like, I like this one better. Um, but Which is not to say that this is a bad movie. I love this movie because it made me look back at animated films. Mm-hmm. Without this film, I never see Spirited Away. Hmm. I never see... I never... You know, maybe maybe never even give some of the Pixar movies or some of the other animated movies that would come out later a chance. Mm-hmm. But but most importantly, I I don't see Miyazaki, I I don't go to the studio. Uh, Ghibli. Ghibli. Mm-hmm. I always say Ghibli. Ghibli. Oh man, that'd be awesome. Ghibli That's the Texas division. I don't even turn. You know, I don't even maybe possibly even really dive into to Ardvark, Ardman. Sorry, and um, Alaka mm-hmm. films. So sometimes just an entertaining movie has, serves a point in, in a list because it opens up doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's what The Incredibles is to me. I do have to say, though, re-overrate the fuck out of this movie. <laughs> um, it's hard to say because I kind of... I remember actually, seeing this is on it. my list, too, now because I want to talk about, like... It's at a place where... I wanted to combine the the entire catalog almost of Pixar into this like big bubble. This one, yeah. And um, just talk about how that makes me feel. I'm gonna be very honest with you. I remember watching it in theaters and kind of feeling the same way, like 2004 level. Like holy shit! Like you know, um, and I didn't really like any of the earlier Pixar movies. Um, yeah, finding, Nemo's, very, finding Nemo's emotionally flat. See, I just find I, I find a lot of this hell. stuff hysterical. Like not hysterical, like funny, like hysterical, just like crazy, like overwhelmingly just insane. Um, oh, Albert Brooks overacting in Finding Nemo is great, though. Uh, see, I just I it was just jarring, and Ellen's Ellen, Jarrett Ellen stinks, is jarring stinks. in it, and it, they really liked. Um, they liked cliches. Pixar liked stereotypes a lot. So, like, the turtles, they were just like, hey, dude, like, we're surfing on the thing and the bling. I was like, oh, my God, get out of here with this shit. Like, they kept, everyone had to be, like, everyone's voice had to be matched to, like, a personality type. The thing I think that's the most magical most, about Most being, importantly, Cliff, every, every Pixar movie needed the mailman. Well, yeah, John Ratzenberg has, he has to be in it. But like the fact that like Willem Dafoe, the mailman. yeah, the fact that Willem Dafoe's like fish is like a scar, 
And he's like, well, it's like, gosh, okay, he could do something else. The the re uh, the first reason I think this is a, is a, is a really good movie and a great movie is um, the voice casting is fucking genius. Aside yeah. from Jason Lee, oh, who thought, remember Jason? I Lee? thought I thought you were gonna say Craig T. Nelson. I was no, like, oh my mother. god, no, Craig T. Nelson. This even was a, in Incredibles Two is like the best part of Incredibles Two. I mean, the thing that actually the least good thing about Incredibles Two is that Craig T. Nelson's fifteen years older. Like they yeah, do, they have no control over the fact that Craig T. Nelson is an what, old like man now. Yeah. Yeah. and kind of sounds like a little bit of an old man. And even this movie is supposed to take place mere seconds after Incredibles one ends. Regardless, Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Sarah Vowell, and whoever plays Dash, who plays does the voice of Dash? I don't think he's like a like a famous person. Oh, it's a uh, I don't think it is a famous. It's Spencer Fox who's. Now the lead guitarist of the indie rock band Charlie Bliss. Oh, they're, they're coming around. I think they're going to be here. What are they? I think in New Haven somewhere. Should we go see them? We should. And just be like, Dash, show. I'm not going to leave the cave. Are you going to leave the cave, Dash? He's like, <laughs> a poor guy. A poor Shut guy up. probably gets that so much. Um, it was genius. I mean, the, vo- the, those, the, fa- the voices of the family are the, some of the greatest Brad voice acting Bird. ever. Brad Bird. As Edna, yeah. As Edna is, is great. Which I didn't even, like, I didn't know that at the time. Then afterwards, I was like, that seems weird. And then it's just kind of like, well, yeah, that's just perfect. Everything about this is and perfect. I, actually, I think my favorite, I mean, it's not my favorite performance, but my favorite casting is Elizabeth Pena as Mirage. As Mirage. Yeah, she's, I mean, that's the thing. She's really and good, she's too. she's usually, like, not amazing. But she works like she usually this, like she held down Jacob's ladder. And Jacob's ladder is a movie I would really love, <laughs> and she really holds that one down for me, which is significant because that movie wants to get out of control very like at every every second of it. Um, that would have that was so close to being like a my movie, and she's like the one that kind of yeah. prevents it from being a my movie. And this, it's one of those things where you want to give Brad Bird a lot of credit too because he uses them so perfectly. Like, he puts them in positions for those voices to be really, like, not just spot on, like, in a Toy Story movie, you know what I mean? Like, Tom Hanks is great as Woody, Tim Allen's great as Buzz, whatever. But they don't convey the right emotions, you know what I mean? That's why I like Toy Story 4 so much, because they actually, they kind of askew the normal voices and they get new voices you know what i mean letting any pots have like a big role is like a great idea key and peel getting in there is a great idea christina Hendricks and tony hale are are great fucking ideas carl weathers as the gi joe is a great idea or action or action jackson whatever it is i think it's gi joe it doesn't matter um those, those are great ideas craig t nelson and holly hunter as the superhero parents is a, a great fucking idea samuel L. jackson which is so really obvious but like him as frozone is is a great idea and kind of like you say the movie becomes not just like a movie full of action set pieces it becomes a movie about people that are just really kind of trying to figure out their way in the world so i in 2004 i was just like this movie is awesome but i think the problem with these pixar movies is that they keep fucking making them so when you take Toy Story 2, or Incredibles 2, which was made 15 years later, and put it next to Incredibles 1, they look like they're two different movies. Like, the water stuff in Incredibles, the water, the physical water is amazing. When you put three animated characters in water, they look weird. 
really weird, like aliens with foreheads that are just kind of like bursting out of their skulls. Um, and that's why I, one of the reasons I, I like Incredibles 2 more is because the animation's just so much better. The animation's so much tighter. I think I like how the story is, expans- is more expansive. I don't know it's if it makes more sense, but I like that it's expanded more than just kind of off of this stupid fucking island with like waterfalls that open up and lava and like chases with with things and, and like I, I all think, that other stuff i think that's why i vastly prefer incredibles to incredibles 2 like obviously from an animation standpoint incredibles doesn't it, it still looks fine but it doesn't nearly hold up right. to incredibles 2 but incredibles 2 tries to reach it, it exists in this like post marvel world now Yep. So it has to not just, it can't just be that kind of like what would be paint by numbers. Like Incredibles doesn't work in a post Marvel, post, you know, 5,000 superhero movies existing world mm-hmm. in that it's just the most prototypical type of um, superhero film there is. And so the entire Catherine Keener story, I forgot her fucking character. The Screenslaver? Name. Yeah, the Screenslaver's character and like those attempts at doing like these really. In, like they're interesting att- like set pieces, but ultimately they kind of fall flat because the story's so patently obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at the same time, the set pieces overwhelm the characters. Like it yeah, feels oh, like yeah, the yeah, characters yeah. are dr- like running around to the next set piece. Well, yeah, Whereas it's... like they don't feel like a family, and you know they're divided the entire film. Whereas this is just like it, the unit themselves working together is the only thing that like helps resolve the action and and in that and i guess this is a more successful movie where that is a more successful like i something i don't know it's 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 a more successful technical achievement yeah but being unique in but it's still a pixar movie so that still the end still is goes crazy like with the ships and you know, void tossing Elastigirl like yeah. through these voids and onto the ship, and then crashing the ship, and then Frozone creating this ice wall, and like and I, I think, I all think this that's other the thing stuff. that's nice about the original about this one is just like that. No, what's what's the robot? I forgot the robot's called. You know, um, does it have a name? Yeah, it does. I can't remember now what it's called though. Oh, the the, the Omnidroid. Um, with the Omnidroid kind of, you know, like, prancing around the town and Syndrome doing its thing. It's like, it's a very kind of, like, Ghostbusters are the Joker in the original Batman, mm-hmm. you know, sort of monster roaming around downtown. Like, like what would become the shining beacon in the sky for every superhero movie in the late 2000s. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's it's a very typical finale, but it's least contained. And like Frozone creating like the, the wall rides and whatnot in that finale work really well. You know, it's not so escalated. Like well, it, because it feels it, confined. Because the actual ending of that movie is Syndrome has Jack-Jack and then Jack-Jack turns into a demon and he, gets and he drops him. Um, so there is that emotional component to the end of Incredibles 1 where there isn't an Incredibles 2 when it's literally just every again everyone's kind of separated and Mr. Incredibles trying to get a huge anchor to fall down and you know 
Miss Elastigirl's flying all over the place, and the other yeah, I'm, you know, fine, I'm fine with Holly Hunter like taking like the lead in that. Like, oh, I, mean, that, like, I don't think you're saying that you're. Cause, I don't think because no, you have to because Craig T. Nelson. Like, if you have Craig T. Nelson doing too much, his voice is distracting in that. Because well, you, he just his voice is cracking. But that's so where, like, parts. I mean, that's where Holly Hunter is like what, probably like sixty three, sixty four now, probably. Yeah, but so she's still like at a point. She's around, but her she's sixty one, so she's Craig T. Nelson's age. <laughs> That he was when he in did the, the first film. Yeah, I mean, her and Samuel Jackson are still like in good voice. You know, Sarah Val and the guy who does Dash are um, still amazing, and they really lean on those. Well, things. Spencer Fox is was replaced. Oh, they yeah. have this different guy. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought he was the same guy. Well, because you can't have a, a twenty. I wasn't sure if he sounded the same. He's a no, voice some genius. guy named like Huckleberry something. Huckleberry Finn. Uh, no, it's just it's Huckleberry Kilmer. He changed his last name. It's about Kilmer. No, it's that it's oh. Doc Holliday. Like he got a ticket from Last Action Hero, yep. and transitioned to the real world. I I get it now. Perfect. Um, um, but no, it's yeah, just, they... I I think, and I, I I think that's a good point. Like, um, that's my problem with a lot of these Pixar movies, and like I guess that's the, the kind of talk I want to have is the fact that like I kind of have Thirty Nine as kind of like Pixar almost. It's just Incredibles is the Pixar movie I'm most attached to, mm. but like Pixar yeah. has so many moments that emotionally like punch me and ruin me that are called pivotal. Up, for example, um, I don't care about the beginning. <laughs> like people love that beginning, but the like we've talked about this before, not on this podcast, but all all the time. I think the we've air. we've dumped on up. Or I've dumped on up a lot on this podcast. Oh, a lot on the podcast, but but I've always said like off the air before me like. Adventures to Come scene is like yeah, the yeah, thing, yeah. thing that ruins me and like, you know, like that is an emotion emotionally destroys me and would could be like one of the pivotal scenes of that I keep uh-huh. going back to in life, but that movie just has so much other shit thrown on top of it. Oh my god! And that entire awful finale. Well, it's a side-scrolling video game for a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and just this relationship between Carl and the the fat kid. I don't care about his name, the Boy Scout. I don't know what his name is. Um, like he doesn't need to be there, and like I want, I care about an old man getting over his wife's death. I don't care about dogs that a can talk, limp, and a dog that can talk, and a fat kid who's bad at Boy Scouting. You know, our Wally is really interesting ways like the environmental cleaning up the world thing, I love it. and then it just becomes you know a bunch of fat people it becomes on hysterical. Us. Spaceship. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. And that's like, I, that's why. And that's like my problem. Like, Pixar creates these fucking great moments, like emotionally resonant moments. Like, Inside Out has that really solid, like, you know, I miss my, I miss my friends. I miss Minnesota scene. And that, like, ruins me. But it has, like, this bullshit, like, and everyone says this moment, but the fucking, um, the elephant, the Richard Kind elephant. Yeah. Like Bo- Bobo or whatever, or whatever um, his name is. Um, this is good radio. Yeah, no, exactly. But Richard Kind's elephant. Oh, what is the name? But of the it? reason I don't remember it is because I don't care. And like, yeah. these are like these really fantastical, crazy out there moments that aren't even really that are trying to connect to an adult. Still, they're still trying to connect adult emotions. They're not really played for a kid. A kid's not. I don't think kids in that kid audience are really going to understand. They're going to understand it's sad that the elephant's gone. They're going to understand yeah. it's sad that you know um, that 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 old man's wife is dead. They're going to understand all of that. But 
this is more meant for an adult, like an, an adult connection to that emotion. And so they like explicate and, and, and explode everything and make everything so grandiose that you just lose all that resonance. It's and that's really what bugs me about Pixar. It's weird because inside, it's like something like Inside Out is v- a very useful movie. Like I, you've used it all. I've used a lot of the things contained in Inside Out to explain to my kids kind of how emotions work and how feelings work and how you know you live your life and you remember things and then other things happen and those memories change and they mean something different now sometimes lewis blah, black blah, 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 can blah. be funny but sometimes it goes too but far. i mean so something like i one of the my problems with um inside out is that um like the physics of the movie don't really work for me so like why is her why is she the only person that has like all different characters for her emotions when everyone else's emotions bing bong the elephant bing bong everyone else's emotions all look exactly the same but are different colors why is that the case i have no idea which makes me think that this is not designed to be a movie about teaching people things it is a movie designed to sell people shirts with different characters on them and to sell people toys about things wrapped around like a really excellent movie that's why Ratatouille, and that's one of the things I hate about Wally. Like I, lo- the first, however long it is, forty five like minutes of Wally yeah. is fucking unbelievable. And then they're just like, well, people aren't going to want to sit through a whole movie of this. We better get some fat people in chairs to say funny things and Jeff Garland to get a plant and like all this other stuff. You know and what I mean? Create a villain at the last moment. Yeah, we better do this. Um, that's why Ratatouille is on my list because it's like the one Pixar movie, and then I think Toy Story four kind of ekes this way. It gets a little hysterical, but like the emotions are, the emotions are real. Um, it's I gotta wait till February when it's on Disney Plus to see that. Oh, you you can, you can take it out from the library. It's an effort, um, <laughs> too much effort to put into a Toy Story. Um, it's. It's the it's the movie that stays true to its emotional core, and I think the Incredibles. Yeah, Ratatouille, Ratatouille never kind of like it never sells it. Out. It never sells out. No, it it just is a a plain narrative. And I actually think that's where the Incredibles is a very successful movie because it is always true to that emotional core. It doesn't know if it's a superhero movie or a James Bond movie. It doesn't look nearly as good as its like 2018 like sequel does. Um, it's got it, a really badly voiced villain. Yeah, but is good, it a solid like motivation for the villain? Well, but I don't, anybody but Jason Lee. I don't know. Get Kevin Spacey the voice that. I villain. think it was a really a 2004 Kevin Spacey when yeah. we thought he was a, just a really good actor. <laughs> no, maybe 2019 Kevin Spacey should go back and do it. Just doing a um, Francis Underwood. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it becomes a really it. interesting uh, commentary now in 2019 about like um, entitlement culture, like where it's accepted that like you should just I'm going to be so mad at you that you didn't pay any attention to me and take my suggestions that I'm going to kill you. Um, yeah, but I can't I always forget that Jason Lee is in the voice of this movie and it is it is jarring and terrible. Um, but the, why? Why? Why he Jason was a big Lee? deal in 2004. For My Name is Earl? Yeah. Was that that big of a movie? It was show? a show. I think it was. Why did they, Jamie... I mean, they... they just get Jamie Priestley to be the voice then? Why not Ethan Suppley if they're going to well, do that... that? Ethan Suppley would have been good. Been good. Probably 
probably would have been solid. In I just think he, syndrome is syndrome is a mistake, and I think they they should have figured out which they they weren't hundred percent sure if they were making a, a a Bond movie or a superhero movie. It was like a Bond superhero movie, um, but I think that would have cut out some of the island like stuff that they were just kind of leaning on. Like, look at the graphics on how we separate this lava, and like look at the shots of this jungle. Um, but yeah, it's an, I, I think it's it's emotionally honest, which m- most of the other Pixar movies are not. And it, and like I said, it opened up the door for me to watch a bunch more emotionally honest movies. Extremely yeah. emotionally honest movies. We'll yeah. be right back then with Tom's emotionally honest number 39. Oh, yeah. Oh my god! I just couldn't get. I Is couldn't this get ASMR. Out, I couldn't get out of the that deep welcome. Are we, are we jumping in the ASMR now? No, like just, ten months too late. You know what? I was doing a lot of um, um, uh, Will Arnett as as Batman voices today because me and the kids were listening to the Lego Movie soundtrack. Mm. So I had to do a lot of like gross and like you know. The kids love it. They think I'm. They think I do a very good Will Arnett as Batman. So they think you're Will Arnett. No, 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 no. He's oh, they, terrible. Are they wondering what Amy Poehler is? I mean, I know they do. No, they don't, because we have to watch the next season of Making It, which is the craft show she does with Nick Offerman. It's like oh, a really? baking show with crafts. It's actually pretty good. People do some amazing things. Is she a craft person? I don't know. Because Nick Offerman's like a woodworker. I don't know anything about Amy Poehler. She used to host What Week in Update. Let's think on this. While we take some sips from our beers, which is a very successful beer. Yeah. Athletic we Brewing the best Company. For last. Yeah, this was a good one. I'd say all three were, were wildly successful. When the first one was just like an okay brown, it was the, the other X2 were really solid. Yeah, the, uh, the first one conveyed the idea of a brown pretty well. This is very drinkable and is not losing its flavor. Like, hasn't yeah, up. yeah. Like we were saying off air, we wish there were more. Yes, we do. We do wish there were more. Um, so let's get to the let's get to work here, Mario. We got some work to do. Roll up, sleeves going up, sleeves going up. I'm just showing off. No, no, we'll do it. We'll both do it. Me and Mario now have no <laughs> sleeves. He's, I'm at the gun show. <laughs> the year Mario is the same year you were talking about. The year is 2004. I. I drove cross-country with my cousin. I started dating my now wife. Started dating in 2004. I'm pretty sure we went to see The Incredibles together at the movies. Did you like it? Um, I don't know. Probably not. She probably was indifferent to it. It's not really her thing. It's pretty loud. But I thought it was early Pixar stuff was always kind of a, like amazing. You know what I mean? When you saw it in, in theaters, you're just like, geez, that's... Looks kind of good. Don't you miss that? Like when things like that were impressive? Sad. Yeah. I do miss it actually a lot. Yeah. Um, even now, like in normal movies, I think that was why I was kind of really into that the fall thing. Because, and why I'm into like the Lynn Ramsey stuff and like what I was talking about is like because they're showing me things that I don't get to see ever. Um, and like, how's that Jack built? How's that Jack built was another one of those where I'm just kind of like, I don't know what this, like, I've, I don't have opportunities to see things like this anymore. Hmm. Actually, that's a really good way to talk about the thing that we're going to talk about today. Um, some other backstories that are important to kind of getting to us 
to our movie is I, you know, I started dating my, my wife, um, who is now my wife. She was just a girl then that worked at the bookstore that I worked at. I got a American Express card with a $1,000 limit so I could buy Christmas presents. And I maxed that motherfucker out in like two weeks. Two of the things I bought, Mario, were the Nirvana box set that had just come out, which I don't think I listened to because I didn't give a shit about Nirvana. But I had a buying stuff problem and I and I and I just bought it because I thought I should buy it. Um another thing I bought, probably for the exact same reason, was Criterion Collections box set of Francois Truffaut's um Antoine Duanel films. Included in that movie was a, a, a movie that my really good friend Roger Ebert had told me to watch in his great movies book, which I had also bought that year. I bought that book because from in 2002, 2001, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, movies were kind of becoming, <laughs> movies were kind of becoming a thing for me. It was ju- literally just music for like a long time. And then, you know, you had your certain movies crop up here and there that we'll talk about. It's a big movie. That's a big movie. They put some ideas in my head, kind of shaped, of like sort of establishing a visual language. But by 2004, I was really into movies. And I bought this Roger Ebert book, The Great Films, and I was reading about these movies, and this movie was one of those movies that he talked about. And one of the movies, I didn't, I love Roger Ebert, and one of the reasons I love Roger Ebert is because he really loved certain movies. You know what I mean? Like, you know, his review of Tree of, and uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life is, is, you know, one of his great pieces because it's just essentially an article about how much he loves, like, this movie. And, you know, the, that passion comes out. Um, and he wrote about this movie that way, and I really felt like I had to see it. And it was um, Francois Truffaut's 1959 film, um, his first feature, uh, The 400 Blows. Très bien qu'à l'école on apprend des tas de choses inutiles. L'algèbre, la science, ça sert à peu de gens dans la vie. Mais le français, hein Le français, on a toujours des lettres à écrire. Tes parents disent que tu mens tout le temps. Non, je mens de temps en temps, quoi. Des fois, ils... je leur dirai des choses qui sont la vérité, ils ne me croiraient pas, alors je préfère dire des mensonges. Si tu me demandes 1000 francs, c'est que tu en espères 500, donc tu as besoin de 300. Tiens, voilà 100 balles. Did you get all that, Mario? You know what one of my fears is when I do these like foreign language drop-ins? Is that I'm just going to cut it in like the middle of a sentence. You know what I mean? Because I don't know what it says. And like when I transfer it to like the audio, I can't see the subtitles anymore. So I'm not 100% sure what they're saying. And I try to get the time right, but I can never get the time right. And I always I always worry about that. But maybe I shouldn't worry about it. But I always worry about that. Um, Antoine Dwinelle is a little bit of a troublemaker. How old do you think he is? 
We never get like a clear definition of his age, but they do ask him later in the film if he ha- is a still a virgin. Uh, so he has to be old enough to have like, like 13, 12. 14? I thought like 12. 12? Is that old enough to lose your virginity? Sure. Or for them to be realistically think that he probably lost his virginity? Sure. He tried. He did try. He did. He waited a couple hours. For the hookers. Yeah. Um, he's steals. He acts out in class. He cuts school. He lies to his parents. He starts a fire in their house. He, Sometimes you gotta have to have an effigy to a fat French poet. Yeah, you do have to have. We all have to have a, an effigy to Balzac in our house. We should all have an effigy to somebody, well, not a poet, or, a, a, or a, an altar to somebody. He was a novelist, yeah. Um, I knew he wrote plays. I just didn't know he wrote novels. He eventually he can't live with his parents anymore. He can't do the things that he's supposed to do. He just can't do them, and so he acts out and he. He doesn't want to live at home anymore, so he goes and lives in, in an old printing factory, and he goes to live at his friend's house, and eventually he just wants to go to see the ocean, so he steals a typewriter from his stepfather's office and tries to pawn it, but he can't, and so he brings it back, and he gets caught, and then he gets sent to, 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 to jail for a night, and then he gets eventually sent to a like a reform school observation center yeah um where little girls are kept in a cage i don't know that's what they do in post world war ii france yeah we'll we'll get there he escapes from there too it was a a brilliant maneuver when they're not he goes to get a soccer ball and then he does the he does he throws it in and then he just runs away and slides into the fence and and he gets enough distance between him and the and the adult that's watching him that he can scamper away and, and run to the ocean and when he's there we get one of the uh most famous shots in the history of film that's still shot of antoine Donnell just looking at the camera and Truffaut just pushes in on him and we get a, a fiend with some plucked violin music going over the top of it <clears throat> I am not, wouldn't necessarily say that I am a French New Wave guy, Mario, in the sense that, in the same way that I didn't go and check on the veracity of anything that happened in Ford versus Ferrari, I did not rush out and see all the French New Wave films. I was largely unaware of Agnes Varda for a very long time. I saw Breathless, and I think I saw one other Godard movie, but I was not like hungry for more um, French New Wave stuff. Um, you know, at this point, I've seen a few things. I definitely haven't seen enough to even qualify me as someone who can speak eloquently about what the French New Wave is about. But one of the things I loved about the French New Wave, which should be clear to anyone who's listened to all of the episodes of this podcast, one of the things that I loved about this movie is how free it was. Not just of like the like a, the narrative straitjacket that most people like put on movies and stuff like that. There wasn't so much of a story here. There isn't even that much of it of trying to convey like specific 
emotions or feelings. It's just a movie about a kid who troublesomely moves through his life. Um, and I thought it was hypnotic and I thought it was mesmerizing and in contained within it, I started to see certain things that I would chalk up and I would do a little more research and find that they, these people were influenced by this film and by Truffaut itself. So like a movie we're going to talk about later on my list, people that are keeping track is raging bull. Um, a lot of the feel and texture of raging bull comes from the 400 blows. Um, we talked about the bicycle thief earlier and like French neorealism or Italian neorealism. I think I'm more of a French new wave guy because it takes those slices of life and puts them through a little poetic ringer. You know what I mean? Instead of just, I do. (laughs) We We will get to Mario in just a second. And so instead of just showing you the things as they are happening, Truffaut twists them up a little bit. And not to say that he makes anything weird. There's nothing even vaguely surrealist about this movie. Um, but he stages them in ways that contain more than just the visual evidence of a thing happening. You know what I mean? And then the inevitable emotions that come from that thing happening. There's a depth to this which is evidenced, I think, in the visual... Con- I mean, it's in black and white. They're probably, I don't know, they didn't have any choice to make it in black and white. But the way that they did it in black and white, the way that they've set up some of the textures, the way they use some of the contrasting blacks and whites of, of this film adds that depth. And it's, it, it is the, like the surface illustration of a lot of the things that are happening underneath... Um, this movie. And, you know, there's things that are said that kind of point to that. There's things that are shown that kind of point to that. But Mario, the French New Wave and its poetry versus Italian neorealism of like something like The Bicycle Thief. It's, elect- it's electric in here right now, folks. The tension is palpable. As, as, I'm, as I'm grasping my cinnamon apple tea. <laughs> Warm in my well, the, heat, the heat is just wafting up in his face. So, there is a lot of bones of a really solid movie here and a really solid narrative. And, you know, cinema and cinephiles will declare this a, a master stroke of, of, of film, of allowing moments to breathe, of encapsulating mm. what it meant to be a child. No. <laughs> Just, it, it, it is, for me, a film that has this really amazing premise and really amazing execution and moments. Um, the entire film's third act, I think, is, is, is tremendous. It, it, it doesn't slow down. And it, it escalates kind of the affronts that Antoine's dealt with. Um, and, but it does such with commitment to narrative while still having those moments of breath. Um, there is the part before, um, you know, his mother comes to see him at the reform school where he sees Renee. 
mm. you know, and allows the camera kind to track there, you know, the French new wave and its love of tracking shots um, to track there, um, you know, before Renee's turned away and his mother's there to just dismiss him completely. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a solid contrast of, of the excitement and, and the, the hope of a child that is then dashed by the reality of what is. Um, the confinement of the holding cell, how tight and, and narrow it is. Um, the, you know, the kind of like elevator tracking shot as he's in that, as he goes yeah, from yeah. the holding cell to that kind of like temporary night in the jail. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's, it has this labyrinth feeling to it. And, it. and it really, that does capture what it feels like to kind of be a child in this like insane situation. This first hour of the film is the Leviathan of patience for me. Um, there are moments that should be asides that become entire sequences. Example. The premier example for me is when Antoine is sent off to get water to kind of like fix the wall yep. you know, from the graffiti. And instead of, you know, his Truffaut's commitment to observe the breath of the moment, to observe kind of like how things are, you know, we get to see Sourpuss talking about the hair and we get to see a kid, or is it Sourpuss talking about the hair there? But the, we get to watch another kid ripping up a piece of paper yep. for a minute and a half. A completely pointless narrative aside that is just meant to exist there, to be an observation, to be a breath, to be uh, a glimpse of of what it is to be this child, what it is kind of be in this boredom, in this kind of like, you know, this, this classroom world. Mm-hmm. Um, the sequence where uh, Antoine gets asked by uh, Jean, uh, Jean uh, Moreau, for to look for her dog mm-hmm. um and and the guy comes along and like tries to shoo him off because he's trying to hit on her yeah, yeah. um the the night the one nice moment you know where they go off to see the film then features a three like a minute and a half long sequence in which they're talking about a movie that they've just gone to see that mm-hmm. serves no purpose whatsoever it does nothing in any way to enhance the narrative to develop any sort of emotional depth between you know julian and and antoine or or the mother and it it exists purely to be this slice of life and those moments exist in italian neorealism the premier example being when they're eating in you know the restaurant and they see like that wealthy kid kind of with his nose in the air, but that is driving thematic power. That is driving power of character. These moments don't have that. And for me, it's, it's not necessarily an indictment of Truffaut. It's the fact that I'm watching a 27 year old still find his voice. Um, I started watching just because I found a lot of, of the bones of a really fascinating intensely emotional story here like you feel Antoine you feel like his plight you realize he's a stupid kid who needs some direction but you feel the plight there like they're 
there's a story here that that's solidly entertaining that not entertaining but solidly emotionally riveting um that, that you know you feel frustration and anger uh like for example i thought 400 blows would be great is if if it actually meant to when sourpuss tries to suspend the other kid and is trying to kick the um him out for plagiarizing balzik mm-hmm. the kids actually like hit him on the head with a rock and the 400 blows is like a scene where it's just a slow methodical 400 blows to the back of this man's head yeah yeah, yeah. and we watch it fracture well yeah like, that, of course that's better than anything it's the best movie ever i kind of want to remake this in like my way and it's just like it it's be. 20 minutes of movie and then just an hour of just raining blows oh no no there there would be there would be additional sequences clear, of clean up additional sequences of violence oh. it would just be it's kind of it kind of made me want to see a movie where like school kids get keep getting like pressured by like their adults and they rise against adults and they become like this roaming gang of like murderers isn't that anyway just teaching mrs tingle no but like <laughs> i'm talking like a like a herschel gordon you know lewis like levels of, of violence but I would go on to like watch, um, you know. After this, I, I've kind of like got into seeing what what came from that, and like so, I watched Anton and and Cloet and and Stolen Kisses so far. I haven't gotten through Bed and Board or Love on the Run, mm. um, but those movies, like especially Anton and Cloet, which is just like a, a short little thirty minute, you know, thirty minute movie mm-hmm. that existed. What is it, Love at Twenty? I think Love at Twenty Years Old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, is like a trilogy made by three different directors, I th- right? I don't remember the exact name of it. Or yeah, it's Love at Twenty. Um, you know, it's it's a collection of, of shorts made by various directors, but there's there's a there's a tight narrative there. There's a story being told in thirty minutes. In Stolen Kisses, there's subplots going on. Subplots that are barely explored in. In uh, 400 Blows, like the, the entire affair. You get this, like, the mother's affair. You get this kind of, like, tinge that the mother's affair is the only reason the mother's being kind to Antoine, to kind of, like, hold it back. But they never really explore that. And then in Stolen Kisses, you really get the fact that Truffaut's an amazing storyteller. And Anton and Colette is an amazing storyteller who's also able to visually do some really impressive things. And Anton and Colette, um, there's that scene... Where and this this is kind of shown in Four Blows, like the best scene in Four Blows to me. Another kind of pointless aside is the PE sequence mm-hmm. where the kids are just slowly, oh, sporadically running it's fantastic, around. Fantastic, yeah. But that serves like no narrative purpose. It does though. Well, we can get to there. But we get to that, yeah. Um, but for me, like Antoine Colette works because that there's something similar to that, some like visual yeah. humor there, where he goes in to lean, to kiss Colette at the movie theater, and she like pushes him away. And he just storms off, mm-hmm. and it shows the movie being played, and it's a man stumbling over while skiing down a hill and falling like flat on his face. Mm-hmm. And that's a hilarious kind of like visual joke. And Stolen Kisses is really good at just kind of like balancing, like Antoine's still development to try to like become this human as he's you know trying to find this like romance with Christine, and and you know growing from like being. Um, dishonorably discharged from the military but there's like these various things and there's these various backbones and subtexts and subplots and still maintaining like the french new wave like there's a sequence where he's just running across the street barely not like avoiding getting hit and it has this long tracking shot but it's not this labor it's not this 
two and a half minute sequence from Breathless where we listen to a man fucking whistling. Breathless is a movie I loathe. I hate Renoir. I think the only like really good part of like French New Wave was like Jean-Pierre Melville, you know, with like uh, the terrible children and um, uh, Le Samurai. The Samurai, that's the godson. Mm-hmm. And, like, like, there is such a lack of focus and narrative in this. <laughs> and, it, and it frustrates me. Yeah. It's a really solid 40-minute movie in 100 minutes. So one of the things I mentioned when we talked about last week about Boogie Nights is that this next chunk of movies is where, like, my personal, like, film language come, starts to come together. We're, we're, like, these movies are kind of going to... From these movies, you can extrapolate like how the rest of my list like would make sense to me. Obviously, which is like the tightness, like which right. once again, I my don't criticism fucking care about. Tightness. So, like, you love tightness, love narrative tightness and stuff like that. For me, I was drinking in all the the looseness of this stuff. However, and 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 it was informing a lot of the stuff I had seen previously. It was informing a lot of the stuff I was going to see. That kind of lack of focus is, I find, thrilling. And it's not one of the things, it's not just something, and I was just having this conversation with somebody. It's so funny. And I'm not saying this movie's terrible. I'm not saying this no, is no, a no, bad no. movie. I'm just saying this movie doesn't speak to me. And I'm not going, and I'm not like. Breathless is a bad movie. Uh, what? Breathless is a bad movie. Oh, I'm not, yeah, we're not going to have a Breathless cover. Breathless, you know what's the part, and this is like talking about the Beatles. It's literally impossible to have a conversation about Breathless because it doesn't matter. Like, the culture has already established what Breathless is, so nothing that anybody can say about it now matters at all. You know what I mean? It just is Breathless. Like, maybe when Godard dies, people Abbey are going to be like... Abbey Road is just Abbey Road. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe when Godard dies, though, people are going to be like, wait a minute. I don't think so. Maybe I think he's going to come back. I think he is coming back again. Ghost? No. He's a ghost. No, because Richard Brody loves, like, the new stuff. Yeah, Richard Brody... That should show you that, you know, he's, he's, he's doing good things, because Richard Brody only likes good movies. <laughs> I think this movie is fantastic, personally, for all the things I've already said. But I also think it's great because all that weird freedom, all that kind of looseness, doesn't prevent him from establishing like a bunch of visual motifs that he just kind of... It, so the movie starts really loose, but then it just kind of tightens up. Oh, no, like, it, it absolutely it does. It just kind of... so. The it great, becomes a horror movie. The great the thing about that, the great thing about the that scene, which Roger Ebert talked about too in his, in his essay, um, where the kids are going to do the PE and they're all just kind of going, they're just scattering in the different directions. He puts him in multiple situations later in the movie where he's in a line, where he's like part of a line of kids going some bear being led by an adult. And it just kind of sets off. Is now going to be the time? Mm, is he going to yeah, yeah. is he going to peel off now? I can see that. There's all these great. There's that early moment when he just sits down to brush his hair. You know what I mean? And you see him in like the three different mirrors. Um, it's the first like a, it's the first shot of Antoine through a medium that we see, and then we see him later a bunch of times through various mediums, through windows, through bars. You know what I mean? And then later it turns when he's in that very tiny holding cell when like those when the prostitutes come in and what have you where he's like scanning everybody else through these bars. You know what I mean? He's just looking at everybody. Then he gets in the paddy wagon and he's just watches like you said for like a whole minute like the city yeah. go by. He's looking at all the stuff that he used to see before. 
it's um then he looks at those girls through that fence we see the girls through the fence and they're looking at him but he's he's contained still within a fence you know what i mean he's looking at renee through the window but then he's also looking at renee like you said as renee leaves through like the masses of parents that are coming to see him and then like as renee kind of leaves the building you can kind of interpret he's looking at through them he leaves through a fence you know what i mean but then at the end of the movie there's no more medium you know what i mean he's looking through nothing it's just you and him like the viewer and him together like holy fucking shit now what do i do you know what i mean and he hits the ultimate fence that is the ocean well he hits the ultimate fence that is like infinity like yeah. i mean there's like, all these like nothing right is, there's all these nothing is there to protect him anymore one of the the scenes that i really love and it's like a little scene is when there's that kid and he's talking there he asks that kid like what he's that kid asked antoine what he's doing here like how, what did he do to get here he talks about stealing a typewriter and they, it's like oh you're an idiot like they're all serial number like that guy stole tires blah, blah blah and then they show two kids that aren't antoine talking about like what they did to get in there or this kid that they know that beat up his dad and they're like sitting in a statue and this kid's like rubbing this like statue which we think looks like a person, but then like it pans up and it's a woman, so he's just like rubbing this woman's statue's ass, and it kind of just roots him to this all of these kids, and then you can assume all that he's commenting like children in general are just kind of like rooted in this fantasy world where like the stakes they don't see the stakes like adults see the stakes. You know what I mean? And the, like the terror that comes from, or the horrible thing that Antoine's mother does is that like when the stakes become real for her, when she's, you know, people are talking about her and like her husband is like being shitty to her and like all this other stuff. She just gets rid of him. Yeah. You know what I mean? She just is like, well, you're here now for have fun. You want it to work, have fun. And what he was saying, not knowing what he was saying becomes like a reality and then he's got to get out of it and he thinks he can get out of it just like he's gotten out of every situation and he runs and that scene when he's running is fucking amazing um like before he gets to the beach those colors in that scene is just the depth of of visuals in those scenes just fantastic and like i said then he gets to the ocean and it's just nothing he is like totally fucking alone and it just kind of it just tightens these, the looseness becomes really focused and just tightens these narrative screws. And I, I always find it like very thrilling. And it's weird because like not a lot happens in the movie. Like you said, it's very loose. But for me, it's just, I think because I know where it goes and I know how it's going to work. Every time I see it, it just, I get like more and more like excited for what I'm about to see. And especially because they don't really make movies like this anymore. So you're not going to get to see like another 400 blows. I think Claire Denis is probably like the closest person working in that style of movie making where everything stays free until she needs to collapse it into like a, a real I mean, like intensity. I mean, I think, I think the, the, the biggest example of someone trying to reflect this but kind of failing... Um, to me, at least, uh, at least, especially with like the Antoine like series, would be Linklater and the Before mm. trilogy. Like that's especially like with how like de- like the pathway that takes in the series of films with like Christine and Sabine and and Colette. 
Um, you know, like Linklear is trying to do that with the Before series. And, you know, I think from a narrative standpoint, it works, but maybe from like a visual aesthetic standpoint, it never reaches that. Well, I think that's a problem with like and, something like Boyhood, where he, yeah. he it's, it's all free and you he mean never collapses. another one of the top 10 films yeah. of the decade? And he never collapses it. You know what I mean? He never ratchets up the tension to a point where any, all the freeness, like, just comes crashing down on top of this one, this one moment. Yeah, there's there's event. nothing building it up, and and I like like that, and that's I, I guess my my frustration with this is I see a great movie, but I don't see like that, I don't see that tightness coalescing, and I see, I still see a lot of, kind of like floating there, like like obvious actually now that you're mentioning like the the pee scene, and I, I still enjoyed that scene, but um, like I didn't see that I guess, and mm-hmm. now now that you mentioned I see it. There's still those scenes that exist, of like the boy cutting out the paper and whatnot, like which represents kind of like the stakes meaning nothing to a child, or you know the the entire scene talking about the film, um, representing kind of like the escape that could still that parents try to see or to kind of like brush off any sort of stakes. Those still aren't to they're, they're still like narratively inconsistent with what that film becomes. They're still not the the most solid ways of doing things. Well, and I, I, I would say that. Yeah. I would say that he has the ability to do that because for me, the because thing later that, he does scene, it. Well, no, later he does it, but even earlier he does it. Like, a scene that really encapsulates like Antoine's personality, but but like, not necessarily a person, that, like not, that tries to show you he's not a, a miscreant, uh, but, but, you know, he's not a total loss, but still just a boy. Yeah. Still some, but still someone who's like fighting against nature itself is when he's in that um centrifuge yeah ride, yeah, yeah yeah you know and everyone's yep. kind of just like moving slightly to the side but he's fucking like he's like fighting it fighting going upside down and like he's smiling but at times he's like grimacing and yep. trying to like pull himself out of yeah. it and from like a, a, a visual characterization standpoint like that scene's tremendous Unfortunately, has like a couple scenes like to build up to it of like playing pinball that go a little too long, and there's just these things that just like yeah. that feel like gristle to me. Um, that that end up being like extreme gristle, like later on of like those scenes I've mentioned mm-hmm. that I just I see perfection there, but it's just imperfect because it's this 27 year old directorial debut. Well, I think I think I think the payoff, and we can end on this. I think the payoff with like the boy in the paper. Nope, we're scene, going for another hour. <laughs> we could if you want. Um, the payoff with the boy in the paper scene, I think, comes at the end when he's waiting to see the therapist, and the kid that he's talking to says like, "Oh, for you know, don't look at. It. She's going to drop her pen. Pick it up, but don't look at her legs. They'll put that in their file." And Antoine's like, "A file?" And the kid's just like, "Well, it's it's what they it's what people think of you." Like, and they ask all these people, it says what all these people think of him. It's the idea that, like, other kids are causing just as much trouble and are being just as disruptive as Antoine is, but people perceive that Antoine is X and they don't perceive that those other kids are X. You know what I mean? It's just what people think. It's just what grown-ups think of you. It's got nothing to do with anything real. Um, and he's, to your point, I think he's fighting against perceived like injustice. something he can't control which is that people now perceive him as you know people do perceive him as a miscreant like people do perceive him as like someone who should be in jail with prostitutes and like you know guys who are obviously very comfortable in jail you um, know and, and while he's trying to do like the right thing too 
Yeah. The, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back is him trying to do the, the right thing, which is returning the well, and he says, typewriter. Like he says to the therapist, he's like, she's like, when she asks if he lies, and he says, like, why lie? I think that's in the clip that I played, but I don't know because it's in French. Um, he's like, I lie because when I tell the truth, it doesn't seem to matter. And I just, so I, I just prefer the lie. I prefer the lie. So, you, you know, it's just one of these things where, like, there's nothing you can do about it. People are, people are going to think what they're going to think regardless of what he does anyway. So, or regardless of what anybody else does. He's still, um, he's still Dwanel. And he have... gets slapped a lot. He does. Hard. <laughs> Left hand or right. I really, that would have made that scene hilarious to me, though. Because if the teacher had slapped him with his right hand. Yeah, I kept thinking, I always think for some reason that Antoine's going to steal his watch. Yeah, me, oh, I saw this, I thought he was supposed to. But he doesn't. He just he takes another bread. chunk of his bread. But, like, I wondered, too, like, this movie is unresolved for me. That's one of the reasons I think it's so high on my list. Did you, did you, did you finish the series? Like, if you no, no, it's like, I've, I, I, don't have, I don't have it anymore. I sold it. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, you do have access to it again. Oh, I have access to it. Yeah, sure, maybe I should. But, like, he takes a little chunk of that bread. Takes a little chunk of that bread. I, I definitely there's a religious the next two films at least. I, I, maybe we should, and maybe I maybe I should when we finish next year when we have some e- extra time and we're not trying to solve the problems of the last twenty years of film. I'll go back into I'll go back into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's you know it's on the Criterion Collection. There's a lot of extra yeah, stuff the entire series on, on the, the Criterion, Criterion Collection, like but about Truffaut's films and stuff. There's yeah. lots of bonus material just there's floating around out there too. So. Um, yeah, check it out. Read Roger Ebert's essay on it in the great films. It's really, really good. Um, he just then, he really loves this movie. And then rewatch Bicycle Thieves and be like, all right, an Italian neorealism is better. <laughs> um, but that's it. Anything else? I am plenty, but maybe we'll cover that in another. I think I think maybe we could do a French New Wave versus Italian neorealism episode. That'd be good. We should pick two other movies or something. Oh, for sure. And then like really like hammer like the big differences between those two. For sure. That'd be good. We'll do Breathless and we'll do something else. I'm just going to pick a De Silva film. We'll do Umberto D. Umberto D would be... Oh, God. That's a... Are you... Are you if Breathless this is a, versus Umberto D. If this is a debate episode and you're trying to like debate French New Wave, you might want to pick something besides it. Let's do it. That against Umberto D. Well, but I'm not going to try to like fix you. It would just be like talking about like no, it'd just be you pulling talking. the things out of it and then it, trying to see how they work. It would be me just slowly breaking you until you, until you stand beside my opinion that Godard we could just burn his filmography. <laughs> I think a lot of people would disagree with you. I mean, I guess it's okay that his films exist. I'm going after the one guy that's still alive in the French New Wave. Well, I just like how you, <laughs> you I like how you've said that like we should burn Godard's filmography, but like. We settled on Brett Ratner just being a piece of shit. But Rush Hour can still live for as long as it wants to. Well, we need to, we need to get we need to get Roman Polanski back for part four. Yeah. Don't forget he was in three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you are Godard and you figured out how to use a computer, I'm sure he probably knows more about computers than we do. To be honest, he's probably coding right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is ruining our 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 SoundCloud page. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's just putting clips of breathless everywhere. Uh, you can tweet us at twitter.com. No, you can tweet us at, at film pivotal. 
Just not that. You don't have to go to our, our Twitter. Right. Yeah, we're learning. Um, or you can go to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com and send us. Again, if you're more comfortable, Mr. Godard with email, you can send it to us some things there. Um, or go to pivotalfilm.com where I just updated a list of our movies, uh, how to subscribe, a list of the beers we drank, um, other stuff. We're, gonna, we're getting too close, like a month and a half away from our, our best of Next week's going to be a big week of, of looking at movies. We got Knives Out, Ryan Johnson re-endearing himself to the public, and then we got the uh, we got the Beast of the East. The Irishman. Yeah. Not, not, which does not star Batman Bigelow. The Irishman. The, oh, is that is that your best like Don Fontaine <laughs> voice there? I don't know. I don't, know how, world, to, I don't know how to say the, the Irishman. I don't know how to say uh, the Irishman as Will Arnett. As How would you say it has Amy Poehler? The Irishman. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so, yeah, go see one of those movies. Uh, drink a beer. Uh, next week, we're doing, we're starting stouts. And our porters. Our porters. The, just just the, the heavy, heavy stuff. It's in December. Christmas is coming along. You got you to gotta get some warm feelings during Christmas. You know what's funny is that this episode is now two hours long. It was a concise, really cleanly executed two hours. Our next episode may be two hours long. I guarantee you it will not be as clean or concise. It will not be jam-packed with information and funny jokes and like good conversations. Because we'll be drinking porters. Because we'll be drinking porters and stouts. It might be low ABV porters and stouts. Oh, yeah. Maybe. I'll put some bourbon in it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. right. Uh, Until then, yeah. See a movie, drink a beer. We'll talk to you next time.